0: Well, do me a favor and uh, turn with me to the first chapter of the book of Revelation. Uh, And then listen to what I read from Titus, okay? I've been uh, getting two reactions from, uh, well, maybe three reactions. We'll say three reactions from the announcement that we're going to uh, start studying the book of Revelation. One reaction is, oh, wow, great, great. I want to know about, you know, the mark of the beast and how COVID fits in. And those are all legitimate, not making fun, uh, all legitimate questions. And uh, who's the Antichrist? And, you know, and people have been really excited about the events that are happening uh, that we're going to see happening here in the book of um, Revelation. Uh, another um, another uh, reaction, I guess, I've heard uh, around is that people are scared of this book in the sense that they're scared about what's ready to happen, what's ready to happen. And um, the third reaction is I can't understand the book. So here's what I want to do over the next uh, 22 weeks. Can you believe that, 22 weeks? By the way, let me take a time out and just say something to you. There are a lot of people who are interested in the book of Revelation, and that's fantastic. And You're going to see, this is the only book that the Lord says if you'll read it, and you'll read it aloud and listen to it, you'll be blessed. He actually says it right here in the beginning. This is the only book that he says this about. Uh, But I just got to tell you, not that you have to come here and there has to be high numbers in our sanctuary. That's not what I'm after here. What I'm after is I want to teach it to you. I want you to know it or somebody else teach it to you. That's a good Bible teacher. Uh, but what I'm saying is you need to be diligent. You're, you're, you're not going to find out tonight (laughs) all the questions that you have. They they won't be answered tonight. There's no possible way. (laughs) There's a, uh, just so much information over the next 22 weeks. But when you're done with this, if you're diligent and persevere, you're, you're going to be so blessed. You know why you're going to be blessed? Because you're going to discover these fundamental answers, or uh, you're going to answer these questions that are fundamental to what people ask in life. Who am I? You ever hear that on, you know, those new agey kind of things? Who am I? Let me go out to Sedona, Arizona and find myself. Well, you don't have to go to Sedona, Arizona, because the Lord tells you who you are throughout the first 65 books of the Bible, and then culminates it here, and you're going to find out who you are. Why am I here? What what is my purpose? Do I even matter? Anybody ever ask that? Or how about this one? Is there ever, is there even any hope in life? Is there any hope in life? You know what happens when people lose hope? It's my wife over there listening to... (laughs) listening to a, a video. But anyway, <laughs> oh, <laughs> is there any hope? Is there any hope? You're going to discover um, uh, evil and this uh, big and uh, uh, battle between good and evil. I mean, that sounds funny because you're used to hearing it in movies or something, and yet this battle between good and evil is raging right now whether you can see it or not. And of course, you can see it because all you have to do is just flick flip on the news for 1.2 seconds, you'll see it right there slamming you right in the face or read uh, the papers or whatever. You're going to answer the questions about evil and you're going to answer the questions, uh, this question that a lot of people ask, is there ever even any possibility that I could live a godly life? (laughs) I mean, is there any possibility? Uh, What should I do with my life? That's in here. You're going to learn things like uh, Jesus being the one who provides the way to the Father. You know that from the rest of the New Testament and the Old Testament. But you're going to learn about the second coming. You're going to learn about the rapture over the next 22 weeks. You're going to learn about the millennial reign. And there's different views on the millennial reign, different views on the rapture. You're going to learn about several judgments we don't really see much or talk about judgments now, but we sure will when the, um, uh, the tribulation period hits and we learn about it here in uh, 6 through 19 of the, of the book of Revelation. You're going to learn about a final victory over Satan. You're going to learn about, listen to this one. Do you ever know this? There's, so, there's a lot of promises. God's promises are contained in the book of Revelation we don't go there much to do our cutesy little uh, Bible memorization, but it's a p- great place to do it. There's lots of great promises uh, right there. Why did, why, uh, I was at a pastor's conference about two years ago, I'm sitting in the back kind of snoozing, not snoozing, but just, you know, tired and just kind of relaxing, and I heard the, the speaker say, if you haven't taught the book of Revelation to your, uh, uh, to your, your flock or your congregation, you've been woefully negligent. And I kind of sat up for a minute and went, wow, okay, that's pretty harsh, but okay, I get it. But you know, one of the things I think the Lord was doing here was, I'm not sure you can f- uh, know the book of Revelation as well unless you know Genesis, which we've been through. Genesis is, there are two, two bookends, you get that, right? Everything that's, all the questions that are raised in Genesis or the, uh, the, the Pandora's box, so to speak, that were raised, like sin. <laughs> well, it's answered in uh, Revelation. We're going to find out what happens to that, right? So, so, so a lot of the things that happen in uh, Genesis, uh, the, the questions that are raised in Genesis are put to rest in Revelation. So Genesis, you got to know Genesis. Daniel, if you don't know Daniel, none of this is really going to make sense, but we'll take you through a little bit of Daniel as we get going, Okay. Isaiah, we just went through Isaiah. Why do you think I was so hot and heavy on getting through Isaiah? Because there's so many promises contained in Isaiah that apply to the future kingdom of Christ. So I wanted to do that. First and Second Corinthians, First and Second Thessalonians, Zechariah, Ezekiel, uh, many, and there's many more. But lots of these books, right? In fact, somebody has said that there's over two hundred. Listen to this: over 500 allusions not with an I, A-L-L, allusions, alluding to the Old Testament. Over 500 allusions to the Old Testament in 22 chapters of the book of Revelation. So it's a book rooted in the Old Testament. One person, I don't know if this is true, I didn't count it, says there's 248 of the 410, Let me. I don't know, 410? No, 400, 278 of the 404... Verses in Revelation allude to the Old Testament. That's amazing. 278 of 404, amazing. So we have to know that. That helps us know. Why do you think we're growing in the Old Testament, man? It just, boom! it just expands your faith. So uh, uh, we're doing that. So let's do this. I'm going to read to you something. Oh, I, I said, some people have told me they're scared. No kidding. Maybe it's one of you but listen to this. I want you to hear Titus, uh, the, the, the chapter in Titus on grace, verse 11. I'll read it to you. You don't really have to turn there, but if you want to, go ahead. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now verse 13, look at this. Looking For the blessed hope. I'm not a smart guy, but blessed means blessed. It means happy. When the Lord returns, for those who are in Christ, we are going to be jumping for joy. Well, anyway, okay. So, uh, So, glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the way, it calls him the great God and Savior. I mean, pretty plain that Jesus is God. So what I'm hoping happens after you get done with this is you, your fear is gone, but your burden for people is elevated. Did you catch what I just said? Your fear personally is gone because their perfect love casts out fear. We're not supposed, or we're not given a spirit of fear, but your burden for people is gonna go through the roof. You're not gonna just see life as a paycheck living, kingdom building, white picket fence having, vacation taking American, I think. I think what you're gonna be is kingdom thinker, a Christ follower thinker who desperately has a burden for the souls of other people. That's what Revelation does. So, turn with me to chapter 1. Turn with me to chapter 1, and as we go, I'm going to answer the questions of why, when, where, how, etc. The, the, the beginnings, or you know, what this book's background is all about. But I'm going to read a few verses first. Here it comes, the word of the Lord, starting in verse, or chapter 1, verse 1, we begin with, the Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. To all things that he saw, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of Um, uh, of this prophecy and I want you to mark this and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near so Lord we just help us by your spirit and tell us Lord what you would want us to have and, and talk about and think about here tonight we need your very words straight from heaven Lord not the words of a man or anyone else uh, but just you, Lord, and we need you desperately. In Jesus' name, amen. So, obviously, the first thing I want you to see is that this book is not the revelation of St. John, as it reads in some books. It might even be in your book, but it's uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what is the word there in the Greek? Apocalypse. And what I want you to see to start to calm fears is we think of apocalypse like, you know, zombies running around. Like chaos and uh, terror and fright and that sort of thing. But all apocalypse means, folks, in the Greek, is the unveiling. It means taking the curtain and pulling it back. That's what apocalypse means. Po- I can't even say it. Apocalypse. That's what that word means. It means that it's being revealed. And it's not a doctrine or charts or, um, uh, you know, uh, positions uh, or uh, uh, es- eschatological uh, paradigms. No, what's being revealed here is the person of Jesus Christ. He's being revealed and he's doing the revealing and he's giving us the agenda that will be revealed. He's, uh, we're unveiling Jesus Christ. Uh, this writer is unveiling Jesus Christ. See, that's all that means. Now, what's interesting is, do you know what the Apocrypha is? Apocry- Apocrypha means something that's hidden. <laughs> Apocalypse means something that's unveiled. I want you to see something at the back of this book. I want you to see it because I hear people say it's confusing. I can't understand it. I don't even want to read it sometimes. I want you to go back to the last chapter of the book, please. And I want you to look in uh, verse 10. Is this like something that needs to be hidden or not examined? No, look at this. Verse 10, and he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book. For the time is at hand. Don't seal this book up. Don't seal this book up. Keep it open so people can read it. You you get it? This is something that I want my church to examine. How do I know it? Because look at this. This is the revealing of Jesus Christ, which God the Father, says it right there, God gave him. Who's the him? God gave this revealing to Jesus. God gave this revealing to Jesus to show who? You. Okay, so let me just do something here. I'm not angry or mad, but just stop saying you can't understand the book of Revelation. And the reason I'm saying that is God wants you to. He's begging you to, not begging you, but you know what I'm saying? He's, he's putting it out there on a silver platter. And he's saying, this revealing is for my followers, Read. So I want to take away the stigma that this thing is too difficult for us to understand. You can understand it. And when we get done tonight, you're going to have an outline in your Revelation book. And it's going to make all the sense in the world. Okay? So it's the revealing of Jesus Christ, which God gave to Jesus to show us. Isn't that beautiful? To show us. The things which must shortly take place. You say, uh-oh, there's the first problem. Shortly take place. This thing was written in 96 A.D. Shortly take place, except for you don't know the word in the Greek, and neither did I, so I looked it up. That word is the same word that we would use for a, what is it, a tachometer? The thing that shows you going from zero to 100 in your car. Is that what it is, A tachometer. It's that word. This word doesn't mean um, uh, it's coming closely in time to the time it was written. What this word means is when these things happen, they're going to go like this. Bang! Fast. That's what this means. There's a big difference. You get that? It's not uh, coming closely in time to the time that they wrote this, 96 AD. That's not what that word means. This word means when these things rev up or start... Like Jesus talked about in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse, when those things start happening, it's going to go bang fast. That's what that means. Everybody tracking? So the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show us, oh, how beautiful, things which must shortly take place. Make sure you note that shortly. And he sent and signified it by his angel. Really interesting. He had a messenger, an angel, and so it went like this, from God the Father to God the Son, to show to the servants, and God the Son called upon an angel to go talk to John. <laughs> you get that? That was a mouthful. But he often did that. He did, uh, he did that often in this book. He delivers these visions or these uh, uh, messages. They're often delivered uh, by an angel, and we'll, we'll keep seeing that. Sometimes he doesn't, sometimes he does. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. We're going to talk about this in a minute. We believe in a futuristic uh, interpretation of this book, which calls for a literal interpretation of what we're reading. And yet within the literal interpretation, certainly there are signs. And here, the angel, look at this, He sent and signified it through the angel or by his angel to his servant John. Now, who are we talking about here, John? Well, you remember John. John and his brother James. By the way, James was the first martyr of the apostles. John lasted the longest, right? James and John, remember, they were the apostles' Uh, the th- sons of thunder, excuse me, the sons of thunder, John turns into the apostle of love. He writes more about love in his writings than anyone in the book. He writes the book of John, even I can get this, 1 John, Second John, 3 John, and Revelation. That's what John writes. He writes those books. And what's Fascinating about it is if you looked in John 2031, he tells us that he he wrote the book of John so that you'd believe, that you'd believe in Jesus Christ and believe on God and have eternal life. That's what he wrote the book of John for. The epistles. He tells us in 1 John 5:13. 5, uh, 5, so the epistles, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, in 1 John 5:13, he tells us why he writes them. He tells them so that you'll be sure that you can have eternal life. So in the book of John, he wants you to believe, in other words, God bless, in the epistles that he writes, he wants you to be make sure that you know that you know that you know that you're going to heaven. And then in Revelation 22:20, 20, I'll take you back there real quick. Look at this. Revelation 22, 20. He who testified to these things says, surely I am coming quickly, amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. He writes the book of Revelation so that all of us will know his son in an intimate way and be ready for his glorious return. Isn't that beautiful? So that's John. But listen, you, you need to know more about John. He was, uh, he was living now around uh, this time, 95, 96 A.D. Some people believe he was written in 95. Some people believe it was written in 96 A.D. But what was happening was Nero now had passed the throne or the throne had transitioned to a guy named um, Domitian. Domitian and Domitian uh, enacted great waves of persecution on the Christians, just like uh, his predecessor Nero. So, so the church is under intense persecution at the time that he's writing this, and he's going to tell you here in a minute that he got sent to this island, you know it, Patmos, for the testimony of the word of God. Apparently, he was still preaching and teaching and sharing the gospel and. The emperor didn't like it. And so what they would do is they'd send them to forced labor camps. And there's some uh, uh, extra biblical history that says on Patmos they would labor all day, breaking rocks and doing things. It's not a very big island. It's uh, in the Aegean Sea, off of Greece, off of Turkey. You know that, right? Asia Minor in the Bible is Turkey, and that's where it was. And here he is. He's been exiled to this place called Patmos that's John and he's writing this book under intense intense persecution so look at this he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John look look at this who bore witness to the word of God that's what happened to him he was sharing the gospel the Roman emperor didn't like it he sent him to Patmos that's why he's there that's interesting. Rabbit trail, but not really. Hmm. This is the most intimate apostle of Jesus Christ, the one whom Jesus, say it, loved. He sat at his breast, right? He reclined with him. He, he was part of that inner three that would go places with him and do things that the other apostles didn't. He was the apostle Of love, because you know why he was the apostle of love? Because he knew that Jesus loved him. There's a sermon for you. But even more than that, I want you to see something, folks. If you want to live a godly life, the book of 2 Timothy tells us you will encounter tribulation. Not what you hear on TV, folks that your life is going to be picture-perfect and rosy. No, if you claim the name of Christ, you can be the most loved one, John, and find yourself in a forced labor camp in the island of Patmos, in the island of Patmos. Isn't that interesting? So here he is, and he's uh, seeing these things, and Uh, bearing witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and to all the things that he saw. And it says here, uh, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. I want you to see something. This is prophecy. It is prophecy. But it is also additional in a sense. Look at this. Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor. You, You get it from the Sermon on the Mount. Check this out. Blessed is he or she who reads and those who hear, apparently they were reading this in the churches that's sent to, reading it out loud, uh, uh, those who hear the words of this prophecy, it is prophecy, and keep those things. Keep them. You and I and we must be ones who not only hear these things, but keep these things. Do you hold these things dear or are you scared of them? See it? Here's this book that he wants to open up to his servants. And he says, I'm not even going to seal it up. I want you to keep reading it. I want you to keep hearing it. I want you to then keep these things dear so that you'll actually do the things. Why? Because the time is near. Now, catch this. This is fascinating. You know seven's going to be a big number in the big book of Revelation, right? You know it's a big number. Well, right. And including seven Beatitudes, there are seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Blessed is the one who reads these. You just read it in 1, chapter 3. How about this one in fourteen thirteen? Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed is he who stays awake or is sober or alert for the Lord's coming. 16, verse 15. Uh, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Hallelujah. Yes. 19 verse 9. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. There's another thing we're going to talk about, the resurrections. 20, verse 6. Blessed is he who keeps the words of this prophecy and this book. 22 7, and blessed are those who wash their robes. 22 14, 7 Beatitudes. Isn't that amazing. The Lord is so perfect, seven being the number of completeness. He's saying, I think. When, to, when you get done reading this book and, and uh, enacting it, living it out, loving it, holding it dear, your blessedness, your, your joy will be full. How about that one? So go on. John now, to the seven churches which are in Asia. You're going to learn who they are. Uh, here next time. But there's these seven churches who are in Asia. What does he say first? He says, grace to you and peace. Charis, from which we get the word charismatic. Don't be scared of the word charismatic, folks. All it means is you're getting gifts gracefully. That's what charismatic means. You're getting a gift. And you have a gift. And so you're Charismatic. Does that scare you? No, it doesn't scare you. And charis is the word for grace. How beautiful. It's the Lord giving you things. So grace and peace. What was the big word for peace among the Jews? Shalom. It means I hope you have peace in every area. And so what he's saying here is to the world, Gentiles and Jews, I want you to know and to be welcomed in grace to you and peace. And as we always say... You cannot have peace until you understand grace. You'll never have peace until you understand grace. If you're counting on your own works to get you a relationship with the Lord, well then, you don't understand the gospel. If you're counting uh, on uh, somehow your merits to get you into heaven, you don't understand justification. (laughs) And all of those things speak of the grace of God. And the grace of God tells us that we are sinners and that our hearts are desperately wicked. Who could know it? There's none of us righteous, no, not one. And so we have a terrible problem. How do we get to God? Well, we can't. And that's the point. Jesus came. He was sent by the Father. He came to do the work that he was called to do. Take the hand of man and take the hand of God. And bring them together through, the blood, through his own blood. The great high priest that opened the access to the sanctuary of heaven. The great high priest, Jesus Christ, is also the perfect sacrifice. He sacrificed himself. And we could go on and on. We could, we, we could, we could never uh, explore all the riches of God's grace, but that's just uh, touching the surface. And grace brings us to this place where Romans 5 tells us we have peace with God. And Philippians tells us now that you have peace with God, you can have the peace of God. So grace and peace, of course. John, the uh, apostle, uh, the beloved one, the one whom Jesus loved, uh, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace. Look at this. Watch it. There's a greeting here. There's a greeting. John's saying, I want you churches to know something. And I want you to know that the Lord greets you. Who greets you? From him. We sang the song. Who is and who was and who is to come. That speaks of the father. Remember when Moses uh, uh, who is, it's like I am, right? It's a different way of saying it. When Moses asked, who should I tell people you are, are Lord? And he said, tell them I am. What? Tell them I am. I'm the great I am. I am. So this speaks of the eternality of the Father. He's eternal. Uh, There's peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. You see, coming, coming, Uh, On the clouds, coming uh, a second time is a big one. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Don't get spooked out. It's nothing spooky. It's found right in the book of uh, Isaiah. That's why I took you through it. I pointed it out when we went there. Turn over to Isaiah 11, just so you can see it with your own eyes. What do you mean the seven spirits? Well, the seven spirits, not really talking about seven spirits, talking about the Holy Spirit who has seven, according to uh, not just seven, but there are seven outlined ministries of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 11. I want you to go there so you'll see it. I want you to see how important the Old Testament is. Look in verse 2. How do you describe the Holy Spirit? Here it comes. Ready? I could never get the seventh one, but I finally figured it out. I always thought there were six, except for I was missing the most obvious. What's the first one? This is the one I missed, the Spirit of the Lord. This is the Spirit of the Lord, one. Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. That's the characteristics of the ministry of the Holy Spirit And back in the book of Revelation, there's a greeting from God the Father, who is and who was and who is to come, and there's a greeting from the Holy Spirit or from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and who else? How plain is this? From Jesus Christ. Why do you think this is the only place in the Bible, I think, in which when you see them in order... The sun is not in, you know, the second place there, although it's not, I hate to say second place because that infers inferior, but you know what I'm saying. He's third here. He's spoken of third here. Why is that? Well, it's because they're shining the spotlight. John's shining the spotlight on Jesus. Remember, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and we're now going to see, and he's going to remind us about who he is. Well, he's the faithful witness. You know, the Jewish folks were expecting the great prophet. I think it's in Deuteronomy 18. Jesus is that. And Jesus was a faithful witness. You could read about it in John 3, to his father, or for his father, or of his father. And he's the firstborn from the dead. He's the faithful witness because he witnesses and prophesies and talks about the father and he's also the firstborn from the dead. Now that speaks of his priestly ministry because firstborn doesn't mean he was born first or even that he was um, first in chronology. Firstborn always means, catch this, in quality, not, chron- uh, not chronology. I'll give you an example. Uh, who was number one in the NFL this year? Who? Kansas City Chiefs. Who was the first team of the NFL? It was not the Kansas City Chiefs. You understand? The Kansas City Chiefs weren't the first in chronology, but this year the Kansas City Chiefs were the first and the best. And what this one is saying, is, this is saying, is that he's the firstborn from the dead. It does speak of his dying and rising again, but what he's trying to say is, listen, all of you folks are going to, who find yourself in Christ, if you find yourself in Christ, you're going to die physically, maybe, unless the Lord comes back first. But if he doesn't come back first, you're going to die, but guess what? You're going to rise again. And you're going to have a glorified, resurrected body. And you're going to live with him in eternity. But guess who is the number one and the best? Always. The firstborn of all creation. The firstborn from the dead. The reason I make that a big point, because in Colossians, it says he's the firstborn of creation. Okay? And when he's talking about the firstborn of creation, people, groups, who don't testify to the deity of Jesus Christ. Say, look, he was born. He's a created being. No, he's not a created being. He's the greatest. That's what it means. That's why I'm trying to hit that home. Okay, so Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, which speaks of his priestly ministry the first one spoke of his prophetic ministry the second one speaks of his priestly ministry why because Jesus opened up heaven he died and rose again and opened up heaven so now that you have access and can come boldly to the throne of room of grace where you can find or throne throne room of God where you can find mercy and grace that's what the scriptures say and that speaks of his priestly ministry Getting people back to God. Hold, hold, hey, I got a point now. You guys are looking at me like, okay, what's he mean? Let's move on. And then it says, he's the ruler over the kings of the earth. And he is the ruler over the kings of the earth. We sang it tonight. Every t- uh, tongue shall confess, every knee will bow. Not now, but when he comes back, it, it's going to happen. It doesn't happen now, but it will happen. He's going to be the king. He is the king. He already is the king. He will be the king, in a sense. He is the king. He will be the king. And he's going to rule over everybody. So that's his kingly ministry. Now, do you remember something about the Old Testament? See, these scriptures are right from the Old Testament in this sense. In the Old Testament, these offices, these offices, the prophet, the priest, and the king couldn't be combined. And in fact, when they were combined sometimes, zap, People got knocked out for it. Do you remember this? Look, it's because this was being reserved for Jesus, the only one who could fill these offices in the way that God wanted, of course. You see it? And so here, Jesus is the one who's giving the greeting. Now you're going, okay, get to the part about the beast. (laughs) Or tell me something about 666. But you don't get it. This letter is being written to people who are going to die. I mean, think about it. Mom's being pulled out of the house and killed. Daughter taken, killed. Rocks. People I love dying. I'm seeing horror. People on fire. And this is being written to them. So they need to know this. Is who I'm serving Really, the one? Is whom I'm serving, the one I've put my whole life in his hands, is he coming back? Can I really trust his promises? And so, John begins this because he wants to tell them the one you're trusting in is the only one you can trust. So, to him, look at this, who loved us, this is the one, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. They're saying, can we really trust you? We're hurting here. We're struggling. We're being persecuted. Can we trust you? And he said, the writer reminds them, remember, he died for you. He bled out too. He died for you. He died for you. And not only this, there's this special little thing in the Greek that's happening with that word loved. I know it has an ED on it, loved. But it's actually in the present tense of Greek, which means he just keeps on loving you. Isn't that beautiful? So to him who loved us, Do you notice it says us? Remember, John himself was boiled in oil. He didn't die. And then washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests. He's reminding them of something that they already know. Peter wrote about this. And that would have been circulated among the churches that they're part of a royal priesthood, a chosen nation. Remember that? A chosen generation. Remember that? And he's reminding them of the things that they know. You're a king and you're a priest. You could go to First Peter and read that. To his God and Father. And for that, John says, look, look. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. In other words, he didn't leave you out. He hasn't forsaken you. He won't forsake you for the ages. No way, no how, because you've become people who uh, are going to rule and reign in his kingdom with him. You're part of the administration, so to speak. You're royalty in the sense that you're a son and daughter of the king. So I know you're hurting now. I know it's struggling now, or you're struggling now. Of course you are. These are hard and tough things, he says. But you're a king and a priest, and that's what you have to remind your own self of and myself of when we're going through tough times. John wasn't spared from tribulation. Paul wasn't spared from tribulation. Peter wasn't spared from tribulation. None of them were, and yet they were never more loved. They're in heaven now. They're, they're a cloud of witnesses. And one day you'll be with the Lord and them. See? So, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins and has made us kings and priests. Oh, to him be glory and dominion ever, forever and ever. Amen. And some see this as almost like a chorus uh, re- responding back to that greeting. Behold, he's coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Now listen, when Jesus comes in his second coming, it will be apparent to everyone. There will not be any secrecy when Jesus comes back to the earth. There won't be any confusion. We'll all see him. I don't exactly know how, but we will. And he's coming in the clouds. By the way, that's a messianic uh, uh, reference to Daniel 7.13. You could look it up later. He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even though they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. What's that a reference to? Come on, folks. If you were with us a few last few Wednesday nights, you read through this in Zechariah. You read through this in Zechariah. Because when Jesus comes back, the seven-year period of tribulation will have happened. He comes back at the end of that. And God is going to be dealing for those seven years of tribulation. I'm pointing to my watch because Israel is God's timepiece. There's a seven-year period where God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world and initiates and um, uh, brings about the revival and uh, salvation of Israel, culminating with the fact that when he comes back, Zechariah 12.10 says... And then following, 13 and 14, says that the Jews are going to recognize their Messiah, Jesus Christ. Hmm. You see why it's a, a book to know, uh, to have already studied your Old Testament? Well, he goes on. In my uh, uh, Bible, it's in the red. <laughs> red letters. It says right before it, even so, amen, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, The beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Again, a reference to Isaiah 9, 6. Even so, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Well, just file something away there. Who's speaking, God the Father or God the Son? File it away for a second. So now, John introduces himself. Okay, he's greeted the seven churches. He's given an introduction. He's greeted the seven churches. We're going to find out who those uh, or most of those churches are or all seven of those churches next week. He's greeted them. By the way, it was written to these seven churches. Um, Why did he write to these seven churches? Because it's interesting because he left some famous churches out. This is a postal route that goes in a clockwise manner. It's also seven churches, so it's the number of completeness. Some people believe it's just because the Lord knew that in each one of these churches there was a characteristic that was missing or great that he could amplify. Other people just believe it's a cross-reference of Uh, all the churches uh, that exist, and so it gives a good cross-section or a good cross-sample so that we could see for ourselves what church is like and how it should operate. We'll get to that later, but it's to seven churches which are in a clockwise manner on a postal route. So he says, I, John, he's introducing himself now in the letter, both your brother and companion, in the tribulation. (laughs) Both your brother and companion in the tribulation. Another interesting thing about John, think about it, the apostle that Jesus loved, he was part of the inner circle, just as we talked about earlier. He just says to them, I'm just one of you. I'm doing the same things you're doing. You see the humility of a follower, a, a, an authentic follower of Jesus Christ. You know what happens in our era? Hey, I'm the pastor. Why don't you serve me? Let me have the space closest to the building. Or, or whatever. When we're in, in reality, we're all just the same with different gifts. Here he just sees himself as one of the brothers or the sisters, part of the family, both your brother and companion in the tribulation. Again, you'll see that he is called the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. I was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Some people believe that just means he was worshiping on Sunday. The Lord's Day is the first day of the week. Some people believe this means he was just worshiping in the Spirit. You guys were doing it earlier today. You were in the Spirit worshiping on Sunday. Other people believe this is some uh, place that the Lord took him, which was really inexpressible. Remember when Paul went up to the third heaven? He said there were words that he had for it that were inexpressible. And some people believe that's kind of the same thought that John's expressing here I was so entranced and so filled up with the Lord, some believe, that I was, I don't even know how to describe it except for I was in the spirit. And that's what he says. But on the first day of the week, on the Lord's day, not the day of the Lord, that's different. You all know that, right? The day of the Lord is when judgment comes. This is the Lord's day, the first day of the week. So when I ask you next week, when did John uh, in uh, chapter 1 when did John receive his vision you're going to say on Sunday right you're going to say on Sunday you'll know okay i was in the spirit on the lord's day and i heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying here it comes again i am the alpha and the omega the first and the last And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are, oh, you will see it today, which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. I want you to write to all of those. And this is going to turn out to be Jesus, by the way. We'll read about it in a minute. But think about it. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, then I'm the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus is God, folks. (laughs) By the way, this is very interesting. The letter alpha or the word alpha is written out in the Greek. The letter or the the, the word omega is not written out. It's just the symbol for the omega. It's like I'm the beginning and I'm the end that never ends. You get that? And you'll be with him if you're in Christ. So I heard behind me a loud voice as a trumpet. I wondered to myself as I was studying for this, I never hear from the Lord, some people say, or I say. I never hear from the Lord. I wonder if it's because we're just not quiet enough. Hear the, the Lord's voice is loud as of a trumpet saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, first and the last. You would want to look in Isaiah 41, uh, uh, verse 14, 44, verse 6, 48, These are all references to the one who is coming, the Messiah, see. The first and the last. I want you to write these things, what you see in a book. Send it then on to these uh, uh, seven churches. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. I turned, and having turned, how about this? I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. There it is again, Daniel 7, verse 13. It's a reference. It's a messi- messianic reference. I, in other words, John's saying, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, I saw the Messiah. Somebody once asked me about a verse where two or three are gathered, here I am also. She's sitting in here right now. Here's your answer. Look at it. Because later on, it tells us that Uh, Well, having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the seven lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in the furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him I fell at his feet dead but he laid his right hand on me saying to me don't be afraid I'm the first and the last I am he who lives and was dead and behold I'm alive forevermore amen and I have the keys of Hades and death and write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden landstands here he tells us folks it's not that mysterious because he tells you what these are. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Now, why would a church be a lampstand? why would a church be a lampstand? Because you're a light. You're reflecting the light of the sun. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Speaking of Jesus, he said, I am the light of the world. But then he said, you're the light of the world. We're the light of the world. And when we come together as a local body, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. We should be the light to the world. What is a lampstand? You know what that thing is. You know the golden lampstand, that big thing with the six arches and then the one in the middle, right? Uh, and in the midst of these lampstands was standing the Son of Man. Listen, folks, where two or three are gathered, do you really, really know this? Do I really, really know this? We have more than two people here tonight. I'm, being, I'm kidding. But we have a church here. We have a local body. Listen to this. Jesus Is in our midst. That should put church feuds to rest. You ever thought about this? Jesus is in our midst. He looks upon the churches. He cares about the churches. He loves the churches and the people in it. He cares what kind of things we're doing. He cares what kind of things we're not doing. He cares about our old and Uh, not old, but our crusty hearts or our tender hearts, the condition of our hearts. He knows them. He sees them. He recognizes them. He's there because he loves us in the midst of our bodies, our local bodies, our church bodies, and and he wants to know and he does know. You get it? He's into church, which I realize you can worship the Lord on a golf course, I guess, after you throw your club or your your ball into the pond or whatever. You can go hiking and worship the Lord. Of course you can do that. You can worship him everywhere by the blood. But he wants you to not forsake assembling together. If you're finding yourself as a lone ranger Christian sitting at home and thinking that's fine, it's not fine. Now, I realize there's an issue going on here with public safety, so that's a different issue. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about under normal circumstances, and you're not around the body. See, the fact is you're missing out. And you can worship the Lord from home, of course. And if you have a a disability or you can't make it, yes, I I get it. But I'm talking about the people who say, I just want to be a Lone Ranger, do my thing, and then go off and do it. Well, see, God's not calling us to that. (laughs) Do you want to just live your life the way you want to live it? Or do you want to live your life the way the Lord asks us to live it? Yes, and here he's into church. And many people just believe that these... The way in which he looks here, in his, some people believe, let me back up. Some people believe this is the way he looks in his unveiled, glorified, exalted state. This is the way he looks. And some people say, well, this isn't exactly the way he looks now. Don't get caught up into the, these things and the sword and the mouth and all that sort of thing. That's symbolic of his character. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to be a good Berean there and pray about it. By the way, I say that a lot. I've had about 10 people in the last month ask me, what's a Berean? Well, Bereans were people who searched the scriptures. They didn't just listen to a pastor, which I recommend. I mean, you listen, of course, but you go back and check everything, every single thing. I think that's in Acts 17, 10, and 12. They would preach, and the Bereans would go and search. That's a great thing to do. But here, whether you believe this is really what he looked like in the vision or if symbolic of his character, look what he was clothed with, a garment down to the feet. It speaks of the priestly garments, but it also speaks of righteousness. There's big uh, discussion in the Bible about having the right clothes on. Isaiah 61, you must be clothed in the robes of righteousness. But he already is. And remember, the priests, no seams, etc. They were, what, what was the, 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 the fiber so that they wouldn't sweat, right? And those sorts of things. And it would, just speaks of purity. And also his priestly ministry, a garment down to the feet. And girded about the chest with a golden band. Same thing. That uh, uh, involves his priestly duties. And his head and hair were white like wool. That's a reference to Daniel 7, verse 9. The Lord, white like wool hair, speaks of purity and white as snow, purity, and he has eyes like a flame of fire. Does he really have eyes like a flame of fire fire? You're gonna be a Berean. But one thing I do know when he comes back, he's coming back in judgment. When he looked at Peter as Peter was crossing the courtyard, remember this, after Peter had denied him, I believe that scene and the way in which you think about it is a litmus test for your spirituality or your Christianity. Because when I read that the first time I ever read it, I went, oh no, Peter's in trouble. You see, the eyes of Jesus, I believe, were full of grace and mercy and compassion telling Peter it would be all right. But when the Lord comes back, look at this, flames of fire. See, the Lord knows everything we've ever done. They're piercing. You could read that in Hebrews, uh, uh, the book of Hebrews. They're piercing. They see. He sees everything. He knows everything. He's uh, omniscient, all-knowing, right? And uh, omnipresent and omni- uh, uh, omnipotent. And his voice is the sound of many waters. And that's Found many places in Ezekiel 1, etc. And that's such a beautiful scripture. I just once did a, a, a sermon on that. That does speak of loud water, powerful water. But if you think about it, the Lord wouldn't ever bend in half a bruised reed, He wouldn't break it off a smoldering wick he wouldn't snuff out. No, he would try, or he would, he would prop it up and build it up to back to flame or bring the, 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 the reed back, right? In other words, have you ever been in the woods and you just heard the brook? And you go, oh, that's so peaceful, so awesome. Or you, you go to the waterfall and you're like, whoa, wow. And then every bit of water in between, you see the Lord can speak all of that to us. And he's going to speak it here to John. Watch this. Almost done. Hang in there. His voice was as the sound of many waters. It is powerful, but he can be so tender. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. You know that. The word of God is a double-edged sword. But also in John 1.14, it tells us that he was full of grace and truth. God's words are graceful and truthful as they come out. And the perfect blend of both. Okay, hold on. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. That's a reference to Judges 5.31. You could go there later. And when I saw him, look at this. This was the disciple or the apostle that Jesus loved. He hadn't seen him in 66 years. Jesus died and rose again around whatever, you know, I'm just estimating here. But he hasn't seen him. He's given his whole life to him, and now he sees him in whatever state he is, in the glorified state, and it just slays him, boom, just right to his knees. And I just have to say, folks, (laughs) Jesus is not our homeboy. (laughs) You know that stupid bumper sticker? He's not our homeboy. We're not chummy. We're not buds. I mean, we are. He's our friend. But I think the church has lost a reverence for God. And you say, well, you, you, you don't dress up in here. Well, I don't think it has to do with your clothes. I think it has to do with your heart. He's not our homeboy. (laughs) Here, this one fell at his feet as dead. It was powerful. And it affected him in a way just like Isaiah. Golly, Lord, when I look at you, I know who I am. I'm a sinner in the dust, and yet you can bring me up out of it. And he does bring him up out of it. You see it? He lays his hand on him, his right hand, his powerful hand, a comforting touch saying to me, don't be afraid. How beautiful is that? I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And you could go to Hebrews 7 for that. Amen. And he, I do have the keys of Hades and death. Do you understand how important that would have been to these people who had family members being dragged out and killed? or they were about ready to be killed. I'm the one who determines life. I'm the one who opens up. And you know, we've over the last uh, several weeks, we've been talking about the two compartments of Abraham's bosom found in Luke uh, 16, and how the ones in paradise were with Jesus in heaven. You, you know that. And he went and Spoke to the ones in in Hades, the uh, resting place of the dead. In other words, what he's saying, I'm the one who has the keys to death and life. We can know for sure, 1 John 5, you can know that you have eternal life. And write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. Okay, you ready? Here it comes. Real quick. I got six minutes to do this. Listen, folks there's four different views. I want it to be intellectually honest with you. There's basically four different views about how to interpret the book of Revelation. There's the preterist view. It's the, uh, that this book refers entirely to its own day. And in 70 AD, when the Romans came in and wrecked Jerusalem, it basically ended all of these things. And this book, Revelation, took place in that day that's the preterist view. There's a historical view. It's like this sweeping panorama of all church history. And this predicts the future, but it only predicts the future of the church age. You get it? The church age, which we live in now, and nothing beyond that. That's the historical view. There's a poetic or an idealist view. And this approach talks about Revelation being a book full of pictures and symbols that are supposed to tell us uh, 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 kind of an allegor- uh, allegorical or poetic review of uh, the uh, quest or the struggle between good and evil, and that the book of Revelation isn't literal or isn't historic, and that Revelation should be a book of personal meaning like poetry. There's a, that's a third view we hold to a different view, the fourth view. It's called the futurist view. It believes this, that with, uh, beginning with chapter 4, Revelation deals with the end times, the period directly preceding Jesus' return. Okay? So that's what you're going to hear now over the next several weeks. You're going to hear a futurist view. And why I bring that up here now is, If you believe in a literal interpretation of the book of, uh, uh, or or a futurist literal interpretation of the book of Revelation, then you have an amazing outline that John, through the Holy Spirit, just gave you. You ready for the outline? Well, write this down. He gives you the outline. I want you to write the things which you have seen. The things which you have seen. That's chapter 1. Chapter one is the thing you've seen, the reality of the resurrected Jesus. You've seen Jesus. And then what I want you to do is I want you to write the things which are. He says that there. That's chapters two and three, where Jesus gives seven messages to seven churches. I want you to write about the church age. I want you to write about the churches. Um, And some people believe uh, that this 2 and 3, this chapter 2 and 3 also uh, talks about the flow of church history. So not only do you have uh, letters that are written directly to the churches, but these seven churches span all of church history, and we'll talk about that next week. Like the Reformation, we'll talk about that sort of thing. And also, of course, it has uh, lessons in 2 and 3 for us today as the church But then it says, I want you to really pay attention to this, and then I want you to write about the things which will take place after this. That phrase in the Greek is meta-talta. So what are the things that take place after this? Well, if you look at chapters 4 and 5, which chapter 4 begins with meta-talta, after these things. In other words, chapter 4 and 5 happens... After the church age, you tracking with me? Here he says in chapter 1, I want you to write about the things which will take place after this. The words metatalta. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, after these things, metatalta, what things? The church age. After these things, what do you see there? In chapters 4 and 5, we believe it's the church that's been raptured and taken to heaven for a seven-year Time with the Lord while chapter 6 through 19 are happening. Chapter 6 through 19 is the tribulation period on earth as God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world and does what he needs to do with Israel, does the uh, things that he needs to do to wake up Israel and revitalize Israel, right? And at the end of chapter 19, we see the Lord coming back. Then in chapter 20 is the millennium. Okay, I know I'm going a long time, but I want you to know something. There are several people in the literal historical view, or excuse me, the literal futuristic view that have a different view about the millennium. Actually, maybe they're not in the futuristic view, but there's different theories about the millennium. I want you to know this. There's people who believe in amillennialism. That means no millennium. And they're generally in one of those other views. I misspoke just a second ago. They're generally in one of those other views. There are also people who believe in or or, or what are called post-millennials. In other words, the millennium happens, but Jesus doesn't come back until after the millennium. You found yourself in a church that believes in the third option, and it's called pre-millennialism. What's pre-millennialism? Even I can figure that out. Jesus comes back before the millennium. Okay, now i got to break it down a little bit further. Within millennia- pre-millennialism, with respect to the rapture, there are pre and there's basically three different views of the rapture. One view of the rapture is that Jesus comes back in the middle of the rapture, One view of the rapture is Jesus comes back at the end of the rapture. And one, or the third option is that Jesus comes back. Oh, do I keep saying rapture? Uh, Erase that from the tape. Here, I'll start again. One uh, uh, is that uh, Jesus uh, raptures, uh, the rapture happens in the middle of the tribulation. Did I get it right there? Uh, Another view is that uh, uh, the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation. Hopefully I'm still getting it right. And then there's a third option, and that is uh, that Jesus raptures the church before the tribulation. Now, we're a pre-tribulation church as a leadership, but we recognize and understand that people have different views on this, okay? So what we would say is, come on. This doesn't determine your salvation or your sanctification or fellowship. There's room for all. But we are teaching a pre-tribulation rapture. But one thing I do think is important, and then I'll be quiet. I think it's important that you understand that a futurist literal interpretation of the Bible, to me, has a big impact on how you interpret the rest of the Bible. Do you pick and choose? Do you allegorize? Do you spiritualize things? No, I never do that in the first 65 books of the Bible. Then why in the world would you do it in the last book of the Bible? Get what I'm saying? And I think it makes a a big, uh, it's an important thing. Okay, so listen, here's your outline. Chapter one, the things which you've seen resurrected Jesus chapters 2 and 3 the things which are given seven messages to the seven churches and there's the chronology of church history and also things for us as the church and then the things which will be hereafter chapters 4 and 5 we believe it's where the church is raptured and in heaven for that seven year period during the tribulation chapters 6 through 19 that is the tribulation period. At the end of chapter 19, the Lord come back to Jerusalem to establish his kingdom. Chapter 20 is the millennium. And chapter twenty-two and 20, or 21 and 22 is the new heavens and the new earth is where you'll ultimately spend eternity. When you get to that place, a final destination, you know you'll really be able to sing when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days, right, to sing his praise than when we first begun. Okay. The mystery of the seven stars you saw, the seven golden land stands, you know, which you saw are the seven churches. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to close up for tonight. That's enough thinking for one night, right? But I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you, I... Really, am begging you. I am begging. I want you to know this book, like the back of your hand, as much as you can. I want you to know this book, and you know, maybe you don't. It's it's okay. Maybe I, I really just stick with it, if you can, as much as you can. Stick with it and be diligent. I know you want to know about the mark of the beast. I know you wanna know about one world government. I know you wanna know about one world religion. I know you wanna know about great Babylon, but we're just going to go step by step by step so that we have the foundation. And here, what I want you to remember as we close, maybe the longest sermon I've ever done on a Wednesday night, sorry, is that it really isn't about the charts and the arguing And the different positions although I have a position and I'm glad to debate it it's really about the person of Christ and what you'll be doing forever with your brothers and sisters so let's pray Lord thanks so much Lord, we just pray that you would do a mighty work in our hearts as you ask us to know this book, to hear these words, and then to do these things. And one thing you asked us to do in Titus, by the grace of God, was to look for your glorious appearing. Lord, make this glorious to our hearts. Help us to hold it near and dear to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, God bless you guys. If you have any questions, you can ask me. If they're difficult, Xander can answer them, okay? God bless you guys.